a blessing to be assembled together here in this place on this Lord's Day to worship God, to commune with Christ. I'm excited to study God's Word with you this morning and this afternoon and continue a series on the book of 1 John. And we've been exploring the overarching theme of our assurance as Christians. I've argued that you know, John makes several, I've written unto you for these reasons to give us indications of the purpose of this epistle and what he's writing about, but I argued that perhaps the ultimate thematic statement, thesis statement given in the book is found in the last chapter as he begins to conclude. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I've written these things so that you may know with certainty, with confidence, with expectation that you have eternal life. How do we know with certainty that we have eternal life, that we're going to heaven? I think that's a very important subject. I believe it affects and influences the way we live our life, how we live our life, why we live our life, the spirit in which we live our life. And I think it's something, uh, at least from personal experience, but I would venture a guess that we all struggle with our assurance at times, that we doubt our assurance for various reasons, sometimes elements of humility in that, sometimes elements of self-righteousness in that, but for whatever reason, we at times doubt and question our salvation. And so how do we know we have eternal life? That's what we've been exploring in this series, and I hope it's been relevant, I hope it's been helpful to you, and will continue to be relevant and helpful to you. And we said that if we were to break this book down into sub-themes that we could explore in a series We could do so based upon the statements John makes about God, the God is statements. And so John says, God is life, God is light, God is love. And we could explore the sub-themes within this book under the overarching theme by exploring God is life, God is light, God is love. And that's exactly what we've been doing. And we talked in part one, the evidence that we have eternal life is life itself, specifically new life through the new birth. We've been born again. Uh, John talks about in in his epistle and also in John 3, Jesus talked about the new birth, echoing that, reiterating that. New life that we have in the new birth, new affections, new desires, uh, this newness, this new creation we become in Christ is part of the evidence that we possess the life associated with God. And then we began a mini-series on light, and we talked in part one of that, our profession, what we believe matters. John emphasizes that as he's addressing Gnostic heresy, the Gnostics who were uh, from the Greek uh, gnosis, knowledge, claiming superior knowledge they supposedly had that nobody else had, that the flesh was pure evil, therefore God could not assume flesh. They denied the humanity and the deity of Christ. They denied that Jesus was Christ, and they denied that Christ was Jesus. And there are many doctrinal and moral implications with that, in the way that we live our life. They denied that basically who you are now as a Christian is just who you are spiritually, and what you do in the flesh is irrelevant, doesn't have any bearing on your salvation. And John, so much of the context of this epistle is John correcting that distortion, that false doctrine. So he emphasizes what we profess, what we believe, our doctrine matters. Because what we believe has a profound effect on what we actually do, on how we actually behave. And so last time we talked about confession. And in 1 John 1, John makes it clear part of walking in the light we're going to talk about today 
Part of being in that lot is being a person that's constantly confessing sin, which by implication means that we are imperfect. (laughs) That we do not become perfect once we become a Christian. That we're still awaiting our glorified state when He comes, John talks about. We'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. And so, part of being a Christian, part of being a genuine Christian, part of how you know that you are a Christian with eternal life, walking in the light, is ironically the fact that you're confessing constantly your imperfection, (laughs) your sin. That's what real Christians do. They confess sin because they continue to commit sin because we're imperfect. And then uh, this morning and this afternoon, we want to talk about our practice. Profession confession, and practice. Balancing out, it's not just what we profess, it's not just what we confess, it's what we practice, what we actually do. What we actually do matters. So, how do we have assurance of our salvation without being complacent, without being presumptuous, without taking sin lightly? First John, as much as any book, is designed to help us with that very thing. And again, the context of this book, he's very concerned with false doctrine that's being taught by false prophets. And in dealing with them, he shows us how to balance assurance with diligence. Again, you think about the Gnostic heresy. They had disconnected Christ from the flesh, and that had a lot of moral implications. They had disconnected being a Christian from how you live in the flesh. And so John writes in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John's teaching not only against their view of Christ, but also against their view of the Christian life. This heresy had led directly to the idea that you could be righteous without practicing righteousness. But the new birth has changed that. The new birth changes a life of sinning. John says the seed of God's Word that caused us to be born again abides in us, remains in us, so that we cannot be content to keep on sinning, to practice sin, walk in sin, live in sin. That's the connection between the new birth and our daily life, our walk in the flesh. And yet I would argue there's a lot of modern-day Gnosticism that's prevalent in the tenets of Calvinism. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. That what you do in the flesh has no bearing on your salvation. That's the concept the Gnostics were teaching. And I think we see elements of that to a certain degree in these tenets of Calvinism who are teaching some of the same things. That it doesn't matter. That it doesn't affect your salvation. But if we're not careful, we spend so much time countering and dealing with the, and emphasizing the possibility of apostasy, which is taught in Scripture, that if we're not careful, it begins to sound like we're saying the possibility of apostasy has become the probability of apostasy. <laughs> and we don't want to swing to that extreme either. When we think about God's keeping power, we studied when we did our series on the epistles of Peter and other things, that God's for us, not against us. He's helping us. He's our advocate. We certainly don't get the indication that the possibility means probability. So we don't want to swing to either extreme. Here's the point. Don't respond and react to false doctrine with false doctrine. That's what people have done throughout time. We don't want insecurity. We also don't want a false sense of security. But the choice is not between false security and no security. John makes it clear there is true security in Christ, and we can have it. 
But fellowship with God and with God's people is not just about what we accept and affirm, but also about what we adopt. It's not just about what we profess, but it's also about what we actually practice. And so going back to 1 John 1, a text we studied in depth last time when we focused on our confessing sin, we want to look at it again, but from a different angle and nuance. John uses this literary technique known as amplification, where he cycles around some of the same concepts, same favorite words over and over. And he comes back to them, and he takes a wider swath, life, light, love, some of the same that we see in the Gospel of John, in the first, the epistle of John. He cycles back to him over and over. And so you read 1 John, and you'll think frequently, he just said that. <laughs> he just said that. Maybe what you think when I preach a lot. You know, he just said that. Especially in this series. That's by design. I did just cover that last time. I, but it's, there's a different angle. There's a different new... He's amplifying certain things. And there's a benefit when he's trying to convince us, don't sin, and he's advocating that what we do matters, but he's balancing that with we have an advocate. Possibility doesn't mean probability, and so he's balancing those concepts and reminding us we have an advocate. We have assurance of salvation. We can know that we have eternal life. And part of doing that is impressing upon us, emphasizing that, repeating that over and over so it finally sinks in, so we finally start to believe it. That repetition is important. 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10, I believe verse 5 is the foundational message. Here's the foundational message. This is the message which you have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There's the God is statement. This is the foundational message of this text. God is light. So here's the application. Verse 6 and 7, walk in the light. As He is in the light. Don't walk in darkness. Walk in the light. God is light. Application. Walk in the light. And then He gives us clarification in verses 8 through 10 after the application. If we say that we have no sin, that's perhaps what was being said by the Gnostics proclaiming once you become a Christian spiritually, there is no sin. What you do in the flesh doesn't matter. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So the clarification is don't claim and expect sinless perfection. That's not what He's saying in verse 6 and 7. When He says walk in the light as He is in light, that doesn't mean for us as Christians now that we've become perfect before our glorification. Don't claim and expect sinless perfection. Because verse 6 and 7 can be interpreted by perfectionists and people who struggle with perfectionism as meaning I've got to be perfect. And if you struggle with that, these are words that we need to meditate upon and reflect upon. It doesn't mean you're perfect. In fact, verse 10 is, again, amplification of verse 8. Notice the parallels, how similar. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but then he ups the ante, he ups the state. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And that's a very egregious sin. So what does it mean when he says, God is light? What does that mean? Well, we read later in 1 John 5.20, he writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. God is truth. 
God is the source and the standard of all things. Nothing is completely seen for what it is, exposed for what it is. That reality is not completely exposed apart from the light of God's truth. God is light. Why the term light instead of truth? Why when we go back to 1 John 1, why did he say God is light? Why didn't he say God is truth? Think about the connotation of light. It's positive. It's inviting. As he's trying to encourage us in our salvation, but also admonish us in our practice, the light of God's truth is full of joy and hope. And that light helps us see what's in the way so we can avoid danger. It helps us see so we can get where we're going, so we can get what we need. Jesus came into this world of darkness to reveal and bring us this light. And that's one of the themes of this book. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Therefore, the application is, don't walk in darkness. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in darkness? I think the next chapter gives us some clues, sheds some light on what He specifically has in mind when He says, don't walk in darkness. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 8, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Walking in darkness means being a person of hate. Hating God, hating others. And that makes sense when you think about Walking in darkness ultimately is walking in sin. The opposite of walking in the light of God's truth. And if loving God is keeping His commandments, and the greatest commandments from which all of them are connected and flow from, love God with all your being, love your neighbor as yourself. The opposite of that, walking in light by keeping God's commandments to love, would be to walk in darkness by hating God and hating other people and the various ways we can do that. That's what it means to walk in darkness. That sums up all the walking in darkness it is. Being a person of hate. And he goes on to write in a passage we refer to frequently about don't love the world, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, of the world, not of God. And he says in verse 17, and the world is passing away. Same phrase. The darkness is passing away. The world is passing away. So there seems to be a connection between walking in darkness and being controlled by the desires of the world and the desires of self, which makes us a person of hate instead of a person of love. We're walking in darkness because we desire things more than we desire God, more than we desire loving God and loving other people, and we're blind to the light of God. If you love the world more than you love God, if you choose dung over diamonds, you're in the dark. You're blind to the light of God. And I think about what John records. Again, we've talked about when you're studying a book, if there's other books written by the same author, it's helpful to lay aside those two books. And so if you're studying 1 John, it's helpful to go study alongside with that the Gospel of John because so much of what John writes about in 1 John is amplification, reiteration of what he records Jesus saying in the Gospel of John. And so by studying those things, it helps clarify what he's writing about, what he has in mind when he writes in 1 John. But as he emphasizes walking in the light, I can't help but think he has in mind what he records Jesus as saying 
in John 3, 19-21, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God." Christ left the light of heaven, came into the darkness of our world that we loved to defeat that darkness and bring us that light. And because He defeated and conquered that darkness, we can overcome it too. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 1 John 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith, our trust in what God has done, what God is doing, has overcome the world's darkness. It's trials, it's tribulations, it's temptations, and our darkness, our imperfections, our sin, our weakness. And John makes it abundantly clear over and over that there's no knowledge, no fellowship with God if you walk in darkness and disobedience and don't practice the truth. Profession without practice, without a life, is a lie. It's pretense. It's hypocrisy. You're claiming superior knowledge like the Gnostics while practicing inferior conduct. It's easy to say, I know Him. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I ask of you? Many will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work, that practice iniquity. James 2, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your works. And so to have fellowship with God, we have to avoid these errors. Walking in darkness, claiming sinless perfection, and we have to walk in the light, as He is in the light. And 1 John describes that walk, how it comes from God's light and our new birth, desiring what God desires instead of the desires of the world and the desires of self, and a lifestyle that comes from seeing and savoring things in the light of God, the way God sees them, the way God savors them, sharing the values of God. That's how we walk in the light. And 1 John 2, 3-6 through gives us the characteristics of one who is walking in that light. He goes on later, we just looked at the characteristics of walking in darkness, being a person of hate instead of being a person of love, And right before that, he gives us in these verses the traits of someone who is... How do you know you're walking in the light? If we keep His commandments... Now, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Living according to God's commandments, keeping His Word, walking as He walked. Living by His commandments, keeping His Word, exemplifying Christ in our life. That's what it means to walk in the light. And the result is we have fellowship with God, fellowship with God's people... And so the key to maintaining that unity that Paul advocates for throughout his epistles, John Jesus advocated for, the key to maintaining Christian unity and Christian fellowship is not to set aside the commandments in the name of unity, not to discount doctrine. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. 
Living according to His commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Keeping His Word, exemplifying Christ in our life. And so the key to enjoying Christian unity and fellowship is for us to all collectively come together and see and savor things in the light of God. And commit collectively, individually, together, collectively, to walk in that light. Because if we don't do that, we are committing to doing something else. We're committing to walking in darkness and sin instead of walking in the light of God's truth. And note that John connects the way we walk with the efficacy, the, the, the power, the effectiveness of the blood of Christ to cleanse our sins. In 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10, there's a way of life, there's a walk in which the cleansing power of Christ's blood is affected, is applied, and there's a way of life, there is a lifestyle, there is a walk, there is habitual activity that results in the blood of Christ not being applied, not being affected. Because that blood has not only a judicial effect, it has a moral effect. It's not just about justification, it's about sanctification. Our heart, our conscience is cleansed as the seed of God's Word has caused us to be born again and remains in us, abides in us, so that we cannot keep on practicing sin unmitigated. Christ came to cover and to conquer our sin, our darkness. In a gospel, a new birth that is powerless to affect change in our life is not good news, it's bad news. If nothing changes. And again, he gives us clarification in verse 8 through 10. Walk in the light, that does not mean sinless perfection once you become a Christian. In fact, he's arguing confessing sin is proof, is evidence, is part of what it means to be a Christian, to walk in the light. Verse 7 would make no sense. The blood continues to cleanse us, present active tense, even after we become a Christian. There'd be no need for that if we were perfect when we became a Christian. We no need for cleansing. We know no need for these warnings not to claim sinless perfection. So don't swing to either extreme. The Gnostic, Calvinist, extreme that teaches your conduct after conversion has no effect on your salvation. And don't swing to the opposite extreme that your conduct has to be perfect after conversion. The first is shot down in verse 6 and 7 when he says your walk matters, what you do matters. The second is shot down when he says don't claim sinless perfection after you become a Christian. So we have a summary table here. If you lay alongside verse 6 and 7, verse 8 and 9, a lot of parallels. If we say that, we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness. We don't have sin. We lie. We deceive ourselves. We don't do the truth. The truth's not in us. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, and a part of that is confessing our sins, what are the benefits? What are the results? We have fellowship with one another. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the verb walk is in the present active tense. We've talked a lot about tenses, and we're going to talk some more about tenses because they matter. Present tense means a consistent pattern of life. Sincerely striving on a sustained basis to serving God and serving other people. That's what walk means. That's the concept. And so again, we have the foundational message in verse 5. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And that light is inviting you to the application 
Therefore, let's walk in the light. Let's practice the truth. Let's enjoy fellowship with God and His people and experience the cleansing power of Christ's blood in our life. And the clarification, do not claim, do not expect sinless perfection as you walk in the light, but rather confess your sin to God. Don't sin, don't despair. He goes on from chapter 1 right into 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So he's just talked about we have forgiveness in the blood of Christ. If we'll confess our sins, we're continuing to commit sin because we're not perfect. But then he follows that up. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, here's the purpose, you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's a very important but. That's a very encouraging but. I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. He's not talking present, active, practice, walk that he talks about, which is proof that we're not a Christian and maybe should doubt and question our salvation if we're living it. He's talking about point sin, any sin. That's the goal, and that should be the goal, that we don't want to sin at all. If anyone sin, I'm writing so that you don't sin, but if anyone sin, we have an advocate. And so he's saying, again, balancing these truths of assurance and diligence... We don't want to interpret chapter 1, those verses leading right into chapter 2, about how we have forgiveness in Christ and we can confess our sins and receive forgiveness. We don't want to interpret that as license. As well, we'll continue in sin that grace may abound. That's not how we respond to that. 1 John 3 verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Here we have a very clear definition of sin given to us by John through the Spirit. Sin is living in lawless rebellion against the law of God. It's insubordination. It's a refusal to submit. And the goal of the incarnation, John argues, the goal of the crucifixion was not just to cover sin, not just to take away sin, to conquer it, to destroy it. Sin, by definition, says what you did will have no impact on what I do. You may have died to stop and prevent me from doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You may have died to motivate me to do this, but I'm not going to do it anyway. The unsaved, the unconverted, the unregenerated practice ongoing sin as a result of a lawless spirit and a lawless attitude towards God and His Word. But if we've been born again and we are a true Christian, that attitude has changed, that we cannot be content to go on sinning, to practice sin unmitigated. We can't live like God and His Word don't exist and aren't important. We're a slave to God now, not a slave to sin. We submit to God now, not to Satan. We love the law of God that we once hated. It's more precious to us than gold. And that's evident in our life. It's evident in what we actually do. And yet, I think sometimes we experience the struggle in keeping the law that Paul described in Romans 7, and we begin to question our salvation because we have a similar struggle and desires. And this effort, Paul says, the things I need to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And we still have that battle. When you become a Christian, that doesn't stop. And if you're fighting, that's not, that's not evidence that you're not a Christian. That's evidence that you're trying, that you're trying to walk in the light. 
When you're grieved and brokenhearted over sin in such a way that it moves you to confess and repent and forsake and affirm the goodness and righteousness of God and His Word, that's evidence that you're a Christian. Paul is saying, I still do sinful things, but they go against everything I want to do now and everything I want to be now as a result of the new birth. I don't live and revel in a state of lawlessness. We were once lawless, but we've been delivered from that. And characteristically, what dominates, has dominion, reigns in our life is a desire to love God and keep His Word. We desire what's right and what's good, and that's clear, true evidence that we've been born again. If there's not that love, if there's not that desire, if there's unbelief and indifference to God and His Word, if there's no interest in God's Word and no interest in obedience, that's proof we're not in Christ. 1 John 3, 8 and 9, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the incarnation, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, not perfectionism. He's, cleared that, he's clarified that in chapter 1, chapter 2. We continue to need an advocate. We continue to need to confess sin, not perfectionism. But he's talking about a life of sin. Sin that is unmitigated is the fruit of Satan's seed in you, not the fruit of God's seed in you. And again, the tenses in the Greek are important, are critical. These were words in tenses chosen by the Spirit for a reason. And if you want to fully, as much as you can, comprehend and appreciate the Word of God, you've got to dig into it. You've got to dissect it to the very words that are selected. Jesus made arguments based on one word, based on the tense of one word. When asked about the resurrection, is there life after death? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. Present tense. They still exist. There's life after death. And we've seen how important, if you want to have assurance as a Christian, when you study 1 John, you've got to look at the words. You've got to look at the tenses. Does knowing that Christ's blood continues to present active tense cleanse us as we are present active tense imperfect? Does that make a difference? Does that encourage you? Does that matter? Does it matter when he talks about a real Christian doesn't practice sinning? What walk means, what practice means? In the present tense, it means habitual action. Somebody who practices, like practicing medicine, a doctor who practices, that's what they do daily. It's their occupation. They do constantly. Our occupation as a Christian has changed. Our occupation is not sin. We will sin, but not habitually, not constantly, not relentlessly. We hate sin, we oppose sin, we lament sin when we see it in our life. It no longer reigns, Romans 6. It no longer reigns, it no longer dominates, it no longer has dominion. Saved people don't live like unsaved people. That's the point. That's the proof. So do we forfeit fellowship with God every time we commit a sin? He says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. That's not present active tense, that's not the person who habitually constantly is sinning, that's any sin. That's dot sin. I lied. I messed up. So if I sin, do I forfeit? Every time I sin, do I forfeit fellowship with God? Every time I commit a sin, thank God we have an advocate when we do sin. We have an advocate. 
And the if here is not an uncertain if like you might not sin. It's a when you sin. You don't need him as advocate. You don't need him to continue to represent you as an attorney. You don't need the cleansing blood of Christ. You don't need grace. You don't need Christ if you're perfect. And that's a very egregious, dangerous, unsettling, (laughs) insecure doctrine to buy into. But why would John say this? The whole point is so that you might not sin, period. I mean, that's the goal, and it should be. And he's worked so hard. He talks about assurance, but John is as hard. If you read the epistle in its entirety, he is as hard on our practice, our lifestyle, what we actually do as anybody. I mean, he emphasizes it matters, and he's dealing with Gnosticism, which says it doesn't matter. And you can live however you want with no consequence. And so he's worked so hard to create this impression, what you do matters. If you want to be righteous, you have to practice righteousness if you're righteous. And then he gives us an out. The whole purpose of the incarnation, the crucifixion, was to defeat sin and conquer sin. And then he gives us an out. Why? Because I think there are two extremes, two types of people on these extremes. Some don't want to hear you have to walk in the light. What you do matters. You do have to try to follow Christ. You do have to exemplify Christ in here. Some people don't want to hear. A lot of people don't want to hear that today. We think about, again, Calvinism and fatalism and determinism, that you can't do anything, and it's the will of the gods, and it's, there's that concept. And then there's the other extreme where people don't want to hear we, and especially others, have an advocate. Some people don't like that either. Soft versus severe. Legalism versus license. It's not either or, it's both and. We must walk in the light, and when we do sin, we do have an advocate. So doing the math, we put all this together. Living in sin, walking in darkness is not the same as committing a sin and being imperfect. Our lives must not be characterized, the fruit of the Spirit. Characteristically, not that we're perfect in each of those fruits, but characteristically, our lives must not be characterized by habitual, unmitigated sin. And again, these tenses matter. We talked about present active tense. Don't practice sin. That would be illustrated by this line. That's somebody who just, that's what they do all the time. That's just a constant, habitual, unmitigated, uninterrupted sin. I'm not trying. I'm giving myself up to that. That's present act. That's practicing. That's lifestyle. That's continuous action. Versus aorist dot point tense. This is like uh, I hit. I lied. I did. Those the dots. I messed up. I messed up. But I'm trying. And there's a, there's it's mitigated in between. There, it's it's interrupted at times not characterized by continuous sinfulness versus linear verbs. If we forsake a life of sin, if we take sin seriously and try our best to confess it and forsake it and walk in the light, when we do commit a sin, the blood of Christ continues to be applied, continues to cleanse us. That's good news. And John's purpose in writing to us is that we may not sin at all, period. I mean, that's the goal. We're not trying to sin. We're not continuing in sin that grace may abound. But a strategy for helping us not sin, even point sin, as much as possible, is a balance of warning and consolation, threat and promise, caution and encouragement, tough and tender, just like the Christ he heard and followed. We need to hear warnings, 
concerning the dangers of living in sin, and we need to also hear the gospel, the good news, that Christ is a propitiation and advocate for sinners. So, balancing don't sin, don't despair. We cannot, if we've been born again, if the seed of God's Word abides in us, be content to keep on, to go on sinning. Fear should move us. When we find ourselves slipping into pretense and hypocrisy, that healthy fear should motivate us not to quit, but to flee to our advocate, to flee to our propitiation. And we don't want to swing to the other extreme and despair and desert in our imperfection. Because that humility, that awareness of our sinfulness, of our imperfection, and His perfection can cause us to read and interpret these verses and not be encouraged, <laughs> to be discouraged. We can swing to the opposite extreme, and so we turn to 1 John 2.1 when he tenderly writes, My little children, I'm writing so that you might not sin, period, at all, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not that we interpret this, use this truth to continue in sin that grace may abound. We want to be motivated. We don't want to be content. We don't want to be complacent. But we do want to take the focus off my perfection, my performance, and fix it on the performance and perfection of my advocate. And if you're discouraged and despairing this morning, John wants you to hear these words. My little children, we have an advocate. Christ's advocacy and His propitiation keeps us from desertion and despair. And as we offer an invitation this morning, it can keep you from despair and discouragement and desertion today as well. If you need to be born again, we talked about the new birth. If you want access to the cleansing blood of Christ to help you as you confess your sin and strive to walk in the light as a Christian, that's only available in Christ alone by being born again, believing, repenting, confessing, being born of water and the Spirit, John 3. Resurrected in a newness of life. No longer a slave, no longer a servant to unrighteousness, but a servant to sin. Not letting sin reign in your mortal bodies. Maybe you're here and you've made that commitment, but you don't feel like you're keeping it, and you're slipping into pretense and hypocrisy, and you need to change your walk. You need to change your lifestyle. And you need to let that fear, that doubt, cause you not to desert, not to despair, but to flee to your advocate, and to find grace and help in time of need. If you have a spiritual need this morning, your advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, invites you to come and find righteousness in Him. Will you come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together?